Welcome into the latest episode of the Five Reasons Podcast. I'm Ethan Skolnick here, as always, with Chris Whittingham. Now that you have found us, make sure that you hit the subscribe or follow button. That way you'll get all of our old episodes as well as all of our new episodes as soon as they post. We also have 12 other podcasts in our network, so check all of those out. The best way to find all of them is to type in Five Reasons Sports, whether you have iTunes, Podbean, Google Play, just type in Five Reasons Sports and all of our podcasts are now grouped together. So it's an easy way for you to consume us. So one of the things we've done here on the podcast that has been popular has been our Heat Stories series. Check out our library. You'll find episodes we've done with Jason Jackson, Eric Reed, Tony Fiorentino, Ronnie Rothstein, Udonis Haslam, Mario Chalmers, Brian Grant, and more. And today we're going to do kind of a combination because this is somebody who did play for the Heat, even though it was relatively brief, but is still with the Heat and is moving into a new role this year. He is the new television analyst for the Miami Heat, John Crotty. John, thanks for joining us today. Hey, thanks, Ethan. Thanks, Chris. It's good to have you here. We're going to take you back a little bit before we get into kind of what your plans are as an analyst this year, sitting alongside Eric Reed. And I want to go all the way back to Virginia, because I think people who listen to you with Mike Inglis, see you on television with Jax and others, don't realize you were really good. Like, I think I think they see you these days. They're like, who is I do that? karate. I do karate. I, I, knew, I knew you were an amazing basketball player. You were not alive. Thanks. You were not alive, Whit, uh, actually. Yeah, right? Whit, you, you're getting much more love than Ethan right now. But I hear you. <laughs> look, it, you know, you, you know, the way I look at it, though, Ethan, is it's we all come into the NBA. Most of us, anyway, have, have been stars in, in college and have had a huge impact in college. And my college career was so much fun and it was it was out you know a lot of uh, a lot of highs and, and obviously some lows too but I was blessed to be highly recruited I was actually McDonald's All-American so I was I was ranked one of the top 25 high school basketball players coming out and that was that was a real uh, eye-opener for me and and put me in a level where I was playing against you know the best in the country which in today's world a lot of those guys would have rolled into the NBA you know so it's a, it's a different time but you know, it gave me a lot of confidence going into college. I had, I was recruited by everybody. My top five schools were University of North Carolina, where my father played, Notre Dame. I'm Irish Catholic from New Jersey, so it's like sacrilege not to at least seriously consider Notre Dame, Virginia, Villanova, and, and Stanford. And I'll tell you, I had a phenomenal recruiting experience, but Virginia was just the best fit for me from an academic, from a basketball standpoint where I could step in and be a factor and play in a very competitive league. And then socially just to have a great time and and, and really enjoy being a a true student athlete. Now you are still the all-time assist leader for Virginia. I think people who are not familiar with what the ACC was at that time, what were some of the players you played with in that conference? Yeah, it was, it was outstanding in terms of the competition and from my perspective, that's what, what I really enjoyed and, and, and thrived on. From a point guard standpoint, uh, night in, night out, I was playing against some of the best players in the country. If it was a Chris Corciani, who a lot of people here in Miami are familiar uh, with, he was from Hialeah, Miami Lakes, and then at NC State with Rodney Monroe, who had also played the point. See, a couple of years younger than me, who, who wound up playing against Kenny Anderson at uh, Georgia Tech as part of the Lethal Weapon 3 with Brian Oliver and, and Dennis Scott. At North Carolina, there was a guy who was highly recruited in King Rice, who, who wound up not being a, a tremendously big name, but was a, a McDonald's All-American and recruited to play both football and basketball at one point. And he was in, a, in a UNC at the time. 
it was a very, very competitive group. And it was, uh, I'm, I'm forgetting Maryland, uh, you know, Walt Williams, uh, the wizard. Um, it, it was just a lot of really good players that every night you had to bring your best. Okay. So you move into the NBA in uh, the 92, 93 season. You're on a team that has John Stockton on it. What is that experience like sure. of, being, of being introduced into the NBA? Well, you're glossing over the fact that I had to play a year in the minor league, which really gave me another whole perspective coming from the ACC and then having to play in a minor league for a year, which was tough and really, you know, was a, was a, a bit of an ego check and had to really grind and, and become a better player, played an NBA style of basketball for a year in a place called Greenville, South Carolina in a minor league. And I got a chance to play in the, in the, in the next year in a summer league with the Utah Jazz and, and wound up making the team and just really competed at a high level because of my desire to get in. And, you know, to be able to sign, it was a one-year deal with the Utah Jazz and come in and play with arguably the best point guard I'd ever play the game was an amazing experience. Uh, first, from the standpoint of competition, I mean, I was going against them every day, banging heads and, you know, learning from them as, as well as, trying to compete with them and then getting to, um, you know, really play with Carl Malone as well, who was arguably the best power forward to ever play the game. Um, and the ability to run pick and roll with this guy and, and what he was able to do offensively to make the team and, and uh, better and to really, you know, from a point guard perspective, challenge me to put the ball in different positions was, was an outstanding experience. John, give us one Stockton story, one that sticks out to you. The one, the one that you either <laughs> I mean, there's, a, there's so many. There's so many. So um, my first week with the Utah Jazz, I was guarding Stockton, and I'm, I'm, I'm the proverbial hyper rookie who's, you know, doing everything he can to, you know, try to be competitive and stand out. And I'm picking him up and guarding him, you know, the full length of the floor and just trying to wear him out. And, he, and his patience level is like, you know, really low at this point up with me. And he takes me to the left wing, fakes to the baseline and winds up coming back hard to the middle. And I literally run right into Carl Malone on a, on a classic pick and roll. And I get, I'm knocked out. I get knocked out. Carl Malone's one of his really good friends was a guy named Delaney Rudd and Delaney basically was replaced by me, which had nothing to do with me, but you know, he wasn't really too happy with me at the time either. So between the two of them, they had a, a great chuckle with me being knocked out on the floor. And I vaguely recall as I came up out of my, my gray mist, you know, Carl standing over me, giving me one of the welcome to the NBA young man type moments before he stepped over me and ran down the floor. So I remember getting into it with Stockton as well during practice one time. I just let, you know, my frustration kind of boil over and we got into it. And Carl actually held us both apart. And he, he was kind of laughing because we were, we were both like two little, you know, bantam roosters. And he's this, you know, gigantic human being kind of holding us apart while we're swinging at each other and can't touch each other and uh but we wound up coming in together and really becoming better friends particularly as i came back later in my career and played for the jazz once again about eight years later where we were you know more peers at that point versus being you know older guy and rookie so those two guys as you said, uh, some people think Stockton, you know, maybe not the best point guard ever, but certainly in the conversation of the top three to five, uh, it depends sort of, you know, how you view magic. But I think most people may put him first, but Stockton has a bunch of those records, whether it's steals or assists, et cetera. And right. Okay. All time assists, all time steals. You know, I think that, you know, the, the arguably the thing is championships, right? And that's right. where magic and, um, you know, gets, gets the nod a lot. 
And then you mentioned Carl Malone, arguably the best power forward ever. I think basically that conversation is him or Tim Duncan. Again, depending on whether right. you view Tim as a, as a center or a four. But those two guys, I'm just curious because they came so close to winning a couple of championships. So obviously, Jordan stopped that both times. But how do you think they would fare in today's game? Because I, I th- when, we, when we hear about Stockton, some people say, well, how does he guard Westbrook? Or we hear about Carl and we say, Oh, that's, yeah. style four. How would both of them fare today? Oh, I th- I, honestly, I think they would both be better. Look, Stockton, I mean, is as athletic as anybody, you know, and that again, a, a bit of a unfortunate situation where people didn't give him credit for that. He was an amazing athlete in terms of speed and terms of lateral quickness where he could, that's why he leads the league in steals all time. I mean, he, he had, great vision and anticipation skills to see what was going to happen a player to in advance. And then with that physical package he had, I mean, look, you talk about athleticism, how about endurance in terms of the amount of games that both these guys play? They, they never miss games. They didn't take games off like today's player do, does. And they just, to them, it would, it would be an insult to go sit on the bench. But I think they compare very well because the game t- was, was much more physical there was a lot more restriction in terms of if, if you drove, a guy could at times put, lean on you and put your fo- his forearm on you and to slow you down, where in today's game of movement and flow, being the skilled players that both of them were, despite the size of Carl Malone, um, he was incredibly skilled as a shooter stepping out from the basket. They would thrive. I really do. I, I believe that. Do you think that players like – we were having a conversation amongst us here on the Five Reasons Network, and we just like to shoot the breeze on a bunch of topics. And one of the things that we were talking about is what would Shaq at his prime look like in today's game? Where does he fit in? And where does someone whose skills are only – are close to the rim – fit in in the modern game and while Carmelone could go I could step out a little bit more he's still someone who is an inside player do you think that those guys and that skill set still has room in the league because we just don't see it very much anymore well we, we don't see it because they're not no one's that good at it I mean both those guys you mentioned Shaq and Carl Malone would be incredibly dominant now and and would force people to have to guard them inside which would create so much more space for the rest of their their teammates but you know look a free-flowing game helps the better skilled players is really how I look at it and both those guys were dominant in such a way that they created double even triple teams at times so I, I think they both do extremely well Shaq just in terms of you know you give them the ball they got a double team inside he you know particularly early in his career ran the floor extremely well later in his career was slower and, and to me got bigger but you know he was an absolute freak of nature the way he could run and and athletically make plays and you know Carl when I got to play with him um had developed when he came in the league he couldn't make a free throw and when I played with him he became one of the best mid-range jump shooters in the league you know a lot like Patrick Ewing did towards the end of his career and they were so good at it so I think both those guys are that talented. They're they're also like so physically dominant, and that's what's so hard to do in this league because there's so many equally strong and and athletic guys. You have to rely on your skill set to last a long period of time. Those guys had the strength and the bulk and and speed in some ways with a skill set. We'll get back to our episode here with John Crotty in a second, but Chris and I have been telling you about bet 
DSI. And what a great deal it is if you've been listening to our podcast. All you got to do is go to betdsi.com and type in the promo code REASON101. That's REASON101. And you get your initial deposit matched up to $2,500. I don't know if you want to put in quite that much. I was a little bit of a chicken. uh, But I should have put in more because I would have gotten that bonus matched. And then I'd be gambling with more right now than I actually am. But we've talked a lot about the NFL lines there. But they've got over-unders futures for all of the NBA teams. Where do the Heat sit right now, Chris? The Miami over-under right now is 41 and a half. So basically, you're betting them to be either 500 or below or over 500. That's literally the bet that you have in front of you at 41 and a half. And I, I got to say, as much as I have occasionally been the negative one on the Heat, and I, oh my I, God! I, oh I, my God! You're going make, over! You're going I, over! I constantly make fun of them for being the 43 and 39 team. They're gonna get to over 500, Ethan which right now is at minus 116 on betdsi.com. They've got to go over. I mean, you're bringing back the same team. The East doesn't look that much better. You're, you're you mean to tell me, Ethan, that the Heat are not going to go over 500? They've got to go over 500. So I'm going to take the over over at betdsi.com. I like a few others, including my personal favorite, San Antonio, over 45 and a half. I mean, the, the Spurs added DeMar DeRozan I, they, over a team that didn't have Kawhi Leonard last year, and they're not going to get to 50 wins. That's like all Greg Popovich does. They're going to get to 50 wins. So those would be my two personal uh, preferences over at BetDSI.com. And again, go to BetDSI.com, get your deposit matched up to $2,500 by using the promo code REASON101. Let's take you to the Heat. You played one season with the Miami Heat. This was after Pat Riley uh, had taken over. He built the core team uh, with Zoe, with Tim, with Dan Marley, with P.J. Brown, with Vashon Leonard, a a core that would have a lot of success over that period of time. And one of the things that kept happening was they kept changing the backup point guard over that period of time. You got a year. Murdoch got a year. Terry Porter got a year. So your first introduction to a Pat Riley practice, how did that go? It was – a bit shocking. I mean, I always prided myself on being, you know, really one of the best fit guys on the team, someone who, you know, could last a long period of time. But I'll back it up, uh, Ethan, and go to the tryout that I had actually with the team where they had me come in and they ran me full court back and forth, back and forth over and over again, making layups, then having to shoot pull up jump shots, you know, quick two shots, free throws to, to catch your breath and then right over to spot shooting and running everything with a high emphasis on conditioning as well as execution. And that was the way we practiced. It was amazing how physical the practices were. The defensive side of the ball got even more emphasis than the offensive side. When we ran drills regularly, the loser in the competition between the offense and the defense would run. That just doesn't happen in the NBA anymore. You know, it just doesn't happen. The edge that we had in practice a lot of the physicality regarding anyone going to the basket was fouled. The practices were in the middle of the season, two and a half, three hours long. You know, a typical practice with most teams, and again, I played for seven different organizations, would be, you know, maybe 45 minutes of intensity with some, you know, before or after walkthrough. And, you know, I'm, I'm including actual on-the-floor work time. We would sit and listen to Coach. Um, he would rank everybody defensively before we even stepped on the floor from the game before. 
He would discuss the game before and then what we were trying to accomplish in the practice. Guys would typically be on the floor 45 minutes before we were even supposed to be. You had to get up a certain amount of shots every day individually. It was a tremendous physical and mental commitment to play for the Heat, but I thrived in it. I really enjoyed how hard he pushed everybody. And, and from my standpoint, that's how I like to play. And I think the team really showed. You could see how he wore on other teams throughout the course of a game. It was almost freedom to play in a normal game against another team rather than to have to play in the tackle football practices <laughs> that we had on a daily <laughs> basis. Can you, can you describe what those practices were like? I mean, uh, you know, regular one-on-one type defensive drills where you're pounding into guys, you're meeting them as they're coming across the lane. The coach would have the ball one wing, the offensive players on the other wing. If I'm defense, I'm my head's underneath the basket. They yell, go. The guy comes running across. I'm hitting him as hard as I can with my chest, preventing him from getting to the block to catch the ball. We're pounding on each other. Eventually, the guy's going to catch the ball with his back to the basket with me. He's going to back me down and turn and try to shoot and, and go live one-on-one. I mean, try doing that for a half an hour, you know, over and over and over again. And, and the physicality of what you're doing there, just to break it down on a one-on-one drill. And we would do that regularly where we would run offense against defense. And, you know, the defense would meet the offense at half court. It was It was just a very, very clutch and grab no fouls called type atmosphere um, with the competition being ratcheted up. You just don't see that in most NBA practices. The coaches aware of, of everything going on, calling out mistakes, accountability at the highest level, making every possession, you know, just seems so important, even on a practice scenario. And the other thing I wanted to ask you about was the tryout process. Now, I, I can't imagine there were a lot of there are a lot of tryouts now just between a combination of summer league and G League and now more of sort of an infrastructure of minor league basketball that it doesn't really happen as much anymore. But can you describe what trying out for an NBA team is like? So I came in a scenario where I came over from Italy. There was an, they had an injury. Gary Grant had a back injury, and they were trying to figure out who they were going to bring in the back of Tim Hardaway. I was in great shape because I'd just come over from Italy because of this opportunity, and they wanted to test me. And I'd only, I hadn't been playing for about a week when I came back. So, you know, when I, when I tell you run full lengths of the court, just, it doesn't sound like much, but just run as fast as you can, you know, six times up and down the court, laying in the basketball and then two free throws and then six times as fast as you can up and down the court, pull up jump shots. Then they pull you over on the half court and you're running one-on-one drills with two different coaches guarding you. You have to get open, catch the ball and make a move with them beating on you and, and hanging on you. It's a super intense workout. And, you know, they wanted to see what kind of shape I was in, whether I was going to be able to step in right away and, and, and be a factor. So you mentioned Tim Hardaway, and there are a lot mm-hmm. of Tim Hardaway stories out there. Going against him in practice every day for a year, how much did Tim talk to you? <laughs> well, the, the thing about Tim was, and, and again, this is what's, what's kind of funny is my first four years in the NBA, my first technical foul I ever got, I was in, in Utah and playing Golden State and Tim and I got into a little scuffle. Every time I played against Tim previous to my heat experience, we tend to get into a little bit of a scuffle because I would be you know, trying to pick him up full court and wear him down. And you know, he, he just would, for whatever reason, didn't like didn't like what I was doing. And we literally would get a technical foul every time we played. And so when I was coming into the situation, I was kind of scratching my head saying, well, you know, 
this could be a long situation for me if if, if Tim and I aren't going to get along because I'm because to your point I'm going to be playing against him every single day right and he's the he's one of the go-to guys and leaders of the team and the night before I joined the team Tim called me one-on-one to welcome me to the team to put me kind of at ease and just say hey we you know we're appreciative I'm glad you're coming in we need help we you know I need we need someone this show is sponsored by BetterHelp. What's the first thing you'd do if you had an extra hour in your day? Go for a run, take a nap, maybe check the stats of the latest Miami Heat game? I've got a better idea. A lot of us spend our lives wishing we had more time. The question is time for what? If time was unlimited, how would you use it? The best way to squeeze that special thing into your schedule is to know what's important to you and make it a priority. Therapy can help you find what matters to you so you can do more of it. I've benefited from therapy. I went through some life changes, major life events, had some difficulties, wasn't a believer in therapy, but it helped me and it can help you also. So if you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapists anytime for no additional charge. So learn to make time for what makes you happy with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash Miami Heat today to get 10% off your first month. Again, that's betterhelp, H-E-L-P.com slash Miami Heat. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich, but you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Handle the ball and we think you can, you know, make a difference. And, you know, really it showed a lot of leadership by him, um, particularly based upon, to me, a little bit of the the past there and uh, maturity. You know, he was he was a guy who competed hard every day. He was the heart and soul of that team along with Alonzo Mourning. He was the guy who would take the big shot when it mattered. Huge talker. But, you know, that that's what he used to, to motivate himself and, and to get, you know, everybody else playing at a higher level. That was his juice, if you will, to kind of light the fire every day. Here's how I evaluated that team. And, and I got to say that that was the first team that I ever covered uh, extensively in any way. I was I, I was I came down here to cover sports uh, full time in 96, covered you guys a little bit, then moved to the Dolphins in 97. So I was around that team some and then a lot the next three years. And tell me if I'm right on these characterizations. I always viewed Zoe as the guy who would run through a wall for Pat because he always repeated everything Pat said in the press conferences. He, he would use certain Riley expressions like adversity introduces a man to himself. Like I, I could parrot these <laughs> 20, 20 years later. Whereas Tim, who was the guy who would run through a wall to run into Pat, that the way we perceived it was that Zoe was always kind of on Pat's side on these things. And Tim was always fighting it a little bit, but eventually they would come together. Was that an accurate characterization of how that thing worked? Yeah, I think that was pretty accurate. I mean, I think Zoe came down from a situation in, you know, Charlotte where, you know, he he wanted to be a star and even more a star in the league and he wanted to compete, you know, in the playoffs and go further. And and he saw with Pat somebody that could take him there. So he was willing to at times blindly follow him and and particularly early on and and do what he said. And it, it resulted in in that type of situation. And he, you know, was obviously handsomely rewarded for being 
the best player he could be and, and to do it at a high level. I think Tim, remember, Tim was coming from a, an incredibly successful situation in Golden State and he had hurt his knee. So this was Tim's, you know, was kind of coming back, if you will. I think some people were skeptical and, and they were, you know, they, they really misjudged the fact that he, he was going to come back even stronger. And, you know, he, he had an edge too. And yeah, I mean, I think, look, coach was, was super defensive minded at times. And I think Tim probably wanted to do some things on the offensive side where he could be even more free to do what he wanted, although he had incredible freedom. And, and yeah, I, I think that's accurate, Ethan, you know, I really do. But I, I think what Coach Riley and the coaching staff did do was they made everybody feel like they had a role on the team and was valuable. And I think that is a really important part of having a successful team. You know, respecting everyone wherever they stood on the food chain, if you will, and get them to feel confident and uh, contributing in a way that, first of all, they're helping in whatever position they're in or they're ready to step in should something happen in a long NBA season from an injury. All right. So you guys have a very successful season. You win 61 games. You're one of the favorites in the Eastern Conference. You win the Atlantic Division. You get Orlando in the first round, and then you get the Knicks. And in that series, you had one of the stranger circumstances that I've witnessed, and I was actually sending baseline, so it happened right in front of me, which was P.J. Brown, who's one of the most mild-mannered people you'll ever meet, and Charlie Ward, also one of the most mild-mannered people you ever meet, somehow getting a tussle under the basket where P.J. throws Charlie Ward. What was your vantage point for that and sort of the rest of the series, which is one of the crazier series in Heat history? Yeah, it was it was an amazing series, period, um, from any hist- historical perspective. I mean, it was, um, you know, you had the whole backdrop of Coach Riley leaving New York to come to Miami. You had a really interesting dynamic where you had Pat Ewing and, and Alonzo Mourning, who were friends, but also, you know, and, and graduates of Georgetown, but also wanted to assert one another's, you know, authority and, and teams on top of the other. You had really competitive guys on both teams who, who really played a physical, hard-nosed style of defense that, you know, Coach Riley really had, had worked on with the Knicks as well as Miami. So it made for a really interesting brew of, of competition and competitive spirit of both teams going at it. And look, I was sitting on the bench at the time watching this. It was on the far side of the floor. It was during a free throw where Charlie Ward basically – chop-blocked P.J. Brown right at the knee on a free-throw attempt, and P.J. picked him up and kind of threw him into the first row of seating. And all this happened in front of the Nick bench, and, you know, this was sort of the blessing part of it from our perspective because everybody came off the Nick bench to try to spill out onto the floor, and it's automatic suspension to do that. And, look, we were blessed. If it happened in front of our bench, it probably would have been us that had the repercussions. And there were so many guys that spilled out onto the floor that the league had to stage the suspensions of the various players, and it certainly helped us. I mean, we were able to win that game, which made it 3-2 to two in New York's favor. We went back up to New York, and I'll, I'll never remember all my years, 11 years of in the NBA and, and some bigger games, I'll never remember the amount of cameras being greater than they were when we got off the bus in New York to our hotel. It was like something out of a movie. Um, when we came off that bus, everybody was waiting there, and they had just ruled out P.J. Brown for the rest of the series. And, you know, the tension and, and the pressure was high as we – we're preparing to go into Madison Square Garden for game six. It was a huge game. And Coach Riley gave us a, a, a great, you know, motivation type type speech along with the chalk talk. And we went out there and got a great win. You know, and they were chanting Pat the Rat the whole time. It was it was a lot of fun. 
I mean, it really was. It's why you play the game. And, and then to come back to our fans for game seven in our building and, and ultimately win the series was just a highlight to the year. Um, we ran into a Bulls team in the next round. It was, you know, with, with Jordan and Pippen that were in the midst of that six championship run. And, and they were, you know, they were, they were a handful. I mean, let's just put it that way. And we lose 4-1 in that series. But, you know, look, I think Coach Riley and the staff got the most out of us that year to win 60 games to compete the way we did. And, you know, everyone played at such a high level. It was, it was a lot of fun. I imagine this would be mortifying to a lot of our listeners or perhaps even you, but Nick's heat kind of predates me a little bit. I, I, I did not get to enjoy the splendor that was those series. So from your perspective, what was the intensity of the games like? What was it like to actually play or, or, or sit so close to a game that is played at that level? Well, it's, it's, you know, it's interesting that you say that, Chris, because it's not, it doesn't appear the same anymore that everyone's hugging each other now before NBA games, you know, which is kind of ridiculous. These games, people generally didn't like each other and it was frowned upon basically from, from the top levels down and you weren't really comrades with these guys until, you know, the off season, if they were your friends, if they were your friends, once you step between the lines, you kind of set that aside. And if they were former teammates, you were really going at each other. So the feeling was much more so than your normal game. There was a, you know, win at all costs type of mentality. There was true vitriol um, from the fan basis, and it trickled down, obviously, to a lot of the personalities and the players and the coaching staff, et cetera, at times, particularly in those series. I'm blessed that I was – I'm the lucky potion, guys. That was the, uh, the year that we were able to beat the Knicks. So, yeah, the only one. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the next three. Well, well, the amazing thing to me about it, John, is uh, – the thing that doesn't get talked about enough is those four series used every game. They used every single game. All four of those series, starting with the one you played in and then the next three, went the distance. Whether it was uh, whether it was five games or seven games, they all went the distance. Right, so, right. Uh, that's yeah, incredible. No, they were, you're right. It is incredible, and it, but it goes also to the just the competitive nature of you know how the games were played then, the physical nature of it too. You couldn't. It was very difficult to run out and blow teams out as much. I would also say. I think the way we played, you know, we we had to compete and play at a high level defensively. We weren't typically going to blow people outright from an offensive standpoint. Points at times we came to a struggle um, to get, but you know, from stopping people, there were there was typically a time in a game where we would we would hold people scoreless for a long period of time and make our move. All right, so one more question here before we get to uh, to the broadcasting um, and everything that you're doing and are going to do this season. You mentioned the Bulls. You saw them up close, kind of, again, peak of their powers. Take that Bulls team, put it in today's era, put them across the court from Golden State. How does that look? Or even the big three heat. Or even the big three heat. We can do both. I mean, look, you know, the whole era thing to me is always tricky, but that's, that's an outstanding Bulls team. And I'll tell you what made them so good and why they could compete against anybody, including today's group, is their defense. They had three guys out front in Pippen, Michael Jordan, and Ron Harper who could switch every screen up front and were equally as good in terms of having length. They were all about, you know, six six or longer with very good lateral quickness. And it made it very difficult to be able to create any kind of pick and roll action out front, any kind of down screens they could switch. Um, They played extremely well as a unit in terms of uh, understanding their roles. Jordan was just such a a competitive guy that he would bring everybody up to his level of, of focus. 
drew so much of the defense. He was able to find shooters, uh, make everyone on the floor better. So he's your ultimate closer. Again, I, I talk about everyone thinks of them as being Jordan and scoring. Their defense to me is what, what really uh, made them special. And, and, you know, I mean, Steph Curry, and, and, and again, let's go back, the rules, right? I mean, you could put your hands on people. You could be more aggressive with them on the perimeter. You can't do that to Steph Curry now. A guy like Steph Curry, it's a lot harder for him to create the space and have room to be able to make plays. If Michael Jordan is hanging on you and can put his hands on you and slow you down with length. And that's the way the game used to be played. It's not played like that anymore. You would not bet on the stock market. You would not invest in stocks unless you knew something about the stocks you were investing in, right? So why would you bet on games unless you had the analytics? If you knew where the public was going with their money so you could make an informed decision. We're taking a look right now at this Dolphins-Bengals game coming up this Sunday. Obviously, Dolphins fans depressed. The team's 3-1, and one, but they just got trashed in New England. They're playing a very good Cincinnati team on the road. Ryan Tannehill doesn't play particularly well on the road. Adam Gase doesn't coach well on the road. Man, I'm depressing you more. Anyway, Chris, <laughs> what is the BetQL app, which you can download for free on Google Play for Android or iTunes for Apple? What is the BetQL app telling you about the Dolphins and the Bengals. Not much better than what you were saying, Ethan. They right now have the public is betting this game 50-50, roughly thereabouts, at Bengals minus six. So this line has been set well in terms of the betting public, but their rating on the game is that they think that Cincinnati should be favored by 11 and the Bengals are favored by six. So if you follow their advice, you should be hammering the Cincinnati Bengals to not only win but cover the six-point spread. They think that the Dolphins, particularly away from home, are not going to do well in this game. The line started at five and a half. I imagine some action came in on the Bengals after their after the Dolphins' performance against the Patriots. Bengals winning away from home in Atlanta. This is a really good Bengals team. The Dolphins are up against it, particularly in the minds of BetQL. And it's not just that game. They have you covered on the Red River shootout this weekend between Texas and Oklahoma. And depending on your in-app purchases, can take a look at any game in the, either the college football, the NFL schedule. They've got baseball in there as well if you want to bet the Major League Baseball playoffs. So plenty of information available on BetQL. Again, go to the Apple uh, App Store or go to the Google Play Store if you're on Android and download the BetQL app. Well, that's a good transition here as we move into our, our final part, which is your broadcasting career. And, I, you know, you've been on the radio now for – for a few years, along with Mike English. You've also been in the studio uh, with Will Manso. You're moving into a different role this year with Eric Reed. So congratulations on that. And what we want to talk to you about is just what your approach is going to be to that. Because I know radio broadcasting is different from television broadcasting in terms of the picture that you're trying to paint, and you're going to be in front of people every day. So have you thought much about how you want to handle this uh, this season and going forward? just trying to be myself um i mean the, the reality is uh i've been doing the radio for 12 years um i've been doing studio tv for six i've been part of a lot of different features and things on the during the playoff runs for the team from a tv perspective so i feel like i've kind of put my time in and and, and worked my way up to this spot but you know I, I know i have big shoes to fill and i'm excited about it it's sort of the next challenge for me i'm i love the game i love talking about the game and to me, what I'm going to bring to the broadcast, my goal is to try to bring the player perspective. You know, how, how do players look at the different situations out on the floor, try to relay that to the fan and, and tell the how and the why. You know, look, it's, 
it's sometimes everyone gets uh, excited about the big dunk, but you know, how did the guy get open to make the dunk? What, what was the play? What, you know, what, what's the reason for that? And that to me is what I will try to bring to the broadcast and then to try to try to teach things, the subtleties, the layers that are going on. I call it the game within the game of, you know, trying to get open and what that entails and the different plays that teams are running and, you know, either how how to get open offensively or defensively, how to combat what, what the other team's doing. These are the strengths that the other team does. This is how you try to combat it. And then track, you know, different players and, and talk about their strengths and weaknesses and, and point out what makes them so good and, and try to give the fans just another, again, another layer. And if I can compare them to guys that we've, you know, like we've talked about, whether it's an Alonzo Mourning or Tim Hardaway, or, you know, I've been fortunate to play with a lot of Hall of Fame type guys, whether it's, uh, John Stockton or Gary Payton or Carl Malone. I mean, I've played with a lot of all-stars that I can kind of refer to, um, you know, that maybe compare or match up with some of these players and, and, and talk about, you know, those types of similarities or differences. I, I think that kind of adds an interesting feature to the broadcast. Yeah, and one of the things that's most interesting to me uh, transitioning from radio is that Radio is the play-by-play man's medium just because it's so much picture painting and, and the game moves so quickly, particularly in basketball. You notice that, particularly in the playoffs, how, I mean, the play-by-play man on his own is just is struggling to tell you what happen, what's happening just strictly based off the pace of the game. But television is the color guy's medium. It's much more about you, you have a lot more freedom to talk over plays because it, when you're doing television, you don't have to say, you know, Wade passes the ball to Tyler Johnson, Tyler Johnson to James Johnson, James Johnson to the white side. Like, like there isn't that sort of constant talking. And so with, with that kind of extra freedom, how do you think you'll either adjust or it'll, it'll end up changing you? Does that mean I get to speak more, Chris? Is that what you're <laughs> yes, saying? Yes, that is, that is exactly <laughs> what I'm saying. Right. I mean, English, English, you know, English yeah. has been keeping me down such a, all these such years. Such a hog, that Mike Inglis. That's right. Well, English, <laughs> English on the officials. That's our, uh, that's our running joke. We Eric, quite as hard on. You know, them. you learn a lot. Yeah, you learn a lot from every medium, and what the radio does is it teaches you to get your point across in a very succinct timely manner because you only have between when the ball comes through the basket and is inbounded to the guy dribbling over half court and initiating the offense when you got to let it go back to the play-by-play guy so you know I I understand how to try to get things across you're you're right it you know I've I've heard that too Chris in terms of um, you know it's a better medium for an analyst and I look forward to that I think the opportunity that for me will be on a lot of the replays, you know, that we can point out things that people might not have really understood or picked up, again, as to the how and the why things are happening out on the floor, trends that are going on, if I can be predictive to what potentially could happen, or just provide that, what I would call second layer of analysis of, you know, this is why this is happening. And and this guy's getting open over and over again. And I hope to bring that and people will learn and say, okay, now I, I get that, you know, and they find that, you know, the things I'm saying, well, I may not be talking as much as Eric Reed, the things I'm saying are worthwhile and they're able to get some value from that in the broadcast. I know a lot of this has to come naturally and, and a lot of the best uh, phrases and expressions do. They come organically. I know a lot of Eric's have come organically. Um, is there something you've got warmed up though uh, for, you know, for the TV audience that maybe you didn't bring out? Yeah, it's, you know, Look, to me, that's really more the play-by-play game, play-by-play guys, you know, situation. My, You know, what's interesting about my role, Ethan, is really I'm so, I'm the guy that has to show restraint. When the dunk happens, you're not going to ever hear me. It'll be Eric on, on the call. But 
look, I, I will definitely be showing emotion. You know, I love yelling at a crusher or something like that when I see one. And, and you know, I, I enjoy the game so much. I'm excited to be on the broadcast. And, and look, this team and this organization, they're always competitive. And I, I get to talk to a lot of other broadcasters in different meetings we have and breakouts and such. And, you know, everyone really admires, you know, our, our organization for the way they take care of people. And from my perspective, I'm excited to be kind of the, the homegrown guy who was, who's been developed and, and come up through the ranks and now, you know, get a chance to be part of the call. All right, final one here uh, before we let you go, because I think some one thing people don't realize is you can have a little fun too. Um, I remember the segments that used to be done on, I believe it was Zaslow's <laughs> show with Birdman. Give us one before we let you go. I want one Birdman story before we let Crotty leave this podcast. Coming on the broadcast and, and, and interviewing him and acting like a WWE character in terms of, you know, <laughs> shouting at us and, and turning and saying, this is not Bert, this is not Chris Anderson. So we're saying, okay, this is okay, Birdman. He said, no, 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 this isn't Birdman. And we're like, well, you know, who are you? This is Birdzilla tonight. I am Birdzilla. <laughs> and this is, you know, this is what, this is my house. And this is what I did today. And, you know, we're scratching our heads saying, okay, man, go ahead. I mean, you know, just go ahead, have your way. You know, yelling around like Randy Macho Man Savage out there, just going off on people. We want you to call yourself Crutzilla on the air this year. Crutzilla, at least once. At, at least once. We'll know that's the Five Reasons Sports shout-out. Well, John, we appreciate you taking the time. We're happy for you to get this opportunity. We'll see you down at the arena. John, thanks for joining us, and uh, and hope we can do it again You know, during the season at some point. I love it. Thanks, Ethan. Chris, I appreciate it. Anytime you guys need me, all the best. All the best.